Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, I'm curious. It just sometimes helps me to know where we are. Um, and there is absolutely no judgment here one way or the other. But I'm just curious how many of us here, when we saw that one of the scriptures this morning was Proverbs 31, cringed a little bit? Okay. Fair enough. <clears throat> In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. This is the scripture we heard last week in Proverbs chapter 1. This is essentially how the book begins. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateway of the city, she, wisdom, makes her speech. And this continues on, and then we get to Proverbs chapter 9, you get... You get even more of this. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has sent out her maids and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here. She says this to those who lack judgment. Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your immaturity and walk in the way of understanding. So Proverbs is about gaining and living wisdom. And in Proverbs, wisdom is a woman. She's the wisdom woman. And many of us here say, well, duh, of course wisdom is a woman. <laughs> so Proverbs works its way through these 31 chapters of wisdom and concludes with a picture of a mature woman, mature wisdom, if you will, a woman of strength, industry, honor, leadership, skill. The wisdom woman, now illustrated as a mature wife, culminates the entire book. So certainly there are things in Proverbs 31 to consider when we're thinking about what it means to be a wise woman. It's set as an illustration and put in a particular culture. It is not providing a timeless template for gender roles. In other words, it's not insisting that all wives must make their families clothes or only tend to the home fires while the men sit out at the gates and do all the ruling. What's even more interesting is if you're looking at this chapter in the Hebrew, the bulk of it, which we read today, which is giving this description of the wisdom woman or the capable wife, begins in verse 10, ends in verses 31, and it's, a, it's an acrostic. It's poetry. And the beginning of each line is a, le a, a letter in the Hebrew alphabet going in order. So you have, in essence, a poem that has given us an acrostic and a summary of basically everything of wisdom that we've heard up to this point. So the final chapter is summing up all the wisdom of the book. It's 
pulling the entire wisdom, all of the teaching into one final flourish of poetry, one final grand picture of the wisdom woman. So there could be a sense in which this wisdom woman models the life that each of us enjoy as we leave behind foolishness and grow up into true understanding and deep wisdom. There's something that's even more uh, provocative about this chapter, though. It's what happens to Proverbs whenever we begin to read Proverbs the way the early church did. And I will have to tell you, I mean, being old doesn't make it right, but the way we read these passages is radically different than the way those in the first couple centuries of the church read these passages. You're going to have to let your imagination run a little bit here, okay? But the early Christians, whenever they read these passages, they believed and were working from the assumption that something radical had happened in the appearance of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And they believed that all of the scripture up to that point in some way pointed to Jesus. And so most of the early church, recognizing that something cataclysmic had happened in Jesus, that every bit of the scripture that was prior to this had been illumined by the person of Jesus, they expected to find an even deeper texture and resonance than they had known before. And so for most of the early church, the wisdom woman, the bride of Proverbs, was actually the bride of Christ, the church. So the church is the community of Jesus for the early church, which means men and women, women, Jew and Greek, slave and free. It is the radical new community made possible by Jesus Christ. And it is precisely this new community which is to be, in the way of wisdom, the industrious, noble, generative community that feeds the poor and tends to the well-being of others and causes life to flourish. And so in that hearing, actually the husband at the gate is Jesus. So by these lights, the church is to be When we are living who God has called us to be, we are to be the community of mature wisdom. The community that blesses with our ingenuity, our faithfulness, our work, our hope, our love for everyone who is in need. So if you're hearing it this way, and again, the early church would probably say there's no one way of reading it. There's multiple ways of reading it. But these multiple ways put together sort of help us to find a more textured way of hearing these wise words. But hearing it, at least the way the early church would have heard it, when we hear James talking, we hear James essentially asking, who is wise and understanding among you? Which means that James is in essence asking, who here wants to take your place among the community that Proverbs described as God's wise woman. Who here wants to be the kind of person empowered by the Holy Spirit that makes us God's community of deep and generative wisdom? Who wants to live in such a way that our life blesses those we love and blesses our neighbors and creates well-being and belonging and stability and beauty and rich, rich, abundant life? 
Who wants to do more than just spout off what we think we know? Like those James talked about last week, those who refuse to tame the tongue. Or who wants to enact the courage to allow our life to be profoundly undone by the things we supposedly believe, which is what James talked about two weeks ago? Or who wants to actually live in a way that stops the abuse of the poor and makes nourishing life possible for everyone? What James talked about just before that. In other words, who wants to be someone who sees God's world as it truly is and then begins to enact a richness of life for the entire community? Who wants to live with wisdom and understanding in the world? So who is wise and understanding among you? Who wants this life and this calling? How do we know who it is that's living in this kind of way? Who's going to take us into this necessary responsibility to be this kind of person? So the scripture in James asks, who is wise and understanding? And James likes to answer his own question. You notice how often the Bible does that? Show by your good life. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful phrase, your good life? Demonstrate with the goodness of your life. We show our wisdom and understanding not by what we say, but by our good life. You know, um, through the various places I've been able to be and just different stuff, I've had a number of occasions to be in the room with a lot of smart people. Most of my schooling, I've been the dumbest person around the table, trying to pretend <laughs> that I wasn't. I'm often mesmerized, and, and, and I say this is not always in a bad way. Sometimes it's in a bad way, but sometimes it's just kind of awe. I'm often mesmerized by certain people's intellect, just their ability to, to bring ideas together and to pull from history and philosophy, and like, it's kind of amazing to me. I'm awed by people's expertise. People who have a craft and they know it and they work it. It's just a beautiful thing. Whenever I have a, a plumber or a tradesman at our house, um, whenever I have to call them, which basically means anytime there's any kind of problem, <laughs> I like, if I'm allowed to, to sort of hang around, to watch, to ask questions. I even have a little note thing on my, on my phone from our plumber and HVAC guy to try to learn. So, okay, when this happens again with the hot water heater, what am I supposed to do? But encountering someone with wisdom, someone whose life compels me to want to in some way live like them, that's rarer. This kind of person, for me at least, is usually the kind of person who helps me see the world in a way that is whole. This kind of person usually takes me by surprise. They demonstrate in some way that I hadn't seen before or that awakens my imagination or that opens up possibilities that I previously hadn't 
really even thought of about some way to live that is good. It's probably why these days I find myself most drawn to people who are a little older and a little slower. There's something about that kind of person who seems to be living with an awareness, a solidness, a conviction, but an unhurriedness that does speak to me of wisdom. We show by our good life, James says, that our works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. And maybe in this phrase, women, uh, women, the, the, the wise woman, wisdom, demonstrates how contradictory wisdom is to the ways that we are conditioned to live because it yields a gentleness. That's a humility, a refusal to grasp after power, a refusal to overwhelm someone with force just because we can, a refusal to demean someone, I think gentleness is a generative kindness. It's a posture that opens up the space for others rather than closing it down. It's a creativity born of self-control that appreciates others with a transforming kind of presence that just doesn't go along with our current dichotomies. It's the opposite, James tells us, of envy, which can be, it seems, two different things. It can either be wanting what someone else has, or it can mean an untamed kind of fiery zeal without wisdom, I guess. It's the opposite of envy, and it's the opposite of selfish ambition, seeking our own advancement. And what's interesting in James is the selfish ambition was often very spiritual. (laughs) What a contradiction. Gentle wisdom or selfish ambition. And I don't know how you feel about it, but there are very few words that seem to describe the opposite of what I encounter in our day than gentle wisdom. And there might be few things that more describe the perverse use of power in our day than selfish ambition. So what would our political realities be? Can you just imagine with me for a moment? What would our political realities be if our leaders demonstrated gentle wisdom rather than selfish ambition. Like, can your mind even imagine such a thing? What would our national economy look like, our corporate posture, if we were fueled by gentle wisdom rather than selfish ambition? You know, a profit for the shareholders is a good thing. It is not the only thing. Gentle wisdom for the common good has to play in at some point. What kind of neighbors would we be and what kind of flourishing would there be for everyone? 
not merely those who've managed to end up on top. What kind of city would Charlottesville be if gentle wisdom was our rule? What would our marriages be like if our hearts toward one another exuded gentle wisdom? What if we just made space for that other person? What if we refused to nail them to the wall when we could? What if we refused to constantly point out their errors? What if our highest ideal was not to be right and for that person to know it? But the truth is that we have to grapple how so often we are driven by envy. There's so much that we want. And so much of that desire can be good, but it can be twisted in really ugly ways. Many of us, and I feel like we're taught this from our earliest age, we are taught to live with selfish ambition. Ambition is a good thing. To want to contribute, to want to be your best, to want to make the most of the gifts God's given you, that is a noble responsibility. But selfish ambition is something entirely other. But this kind of wisdom, James says, and when I read that, that indicates to me that apparently there are competing wisdoms. This kind of wisdom. So there is a true wisdom of the world I mean, a true wisdom of God, and there is a false wisdom of the world. As Christians, we have to discern and decide what kind of wisdom are we going to live by. But this kind of wisdom, James says, is not from God. It's from somewhere else. And James tells us, if it's not from God, it's not good. It's unspiritual and devilish. Did you know that there is a wisdom prevalent that is devilish? It seems like wisdom. It comes masqueraded as the evil one always does, as an angel of light. It sounds good. It may even work in a certain way and to a certain end. But it is not the wisdom of God. And it's devilish. And it will ultimately only lead to destruction. So true wisdom. Okay. I'm there, James. I'm intrigued. I don't want the devilish kind. I want the woman wisdom kind. I want the community of grace kind. I want the kind that can imagine and participate in the world God envisions. So what does it look like? Well, James will tell us. True wisdom, the wisdom from God, is first pure. Isn't that beautiful? It's not diluted by competing motivations. The wisdom that comes from God is as pure as gold. It is then peaceable. It is gentle. It is willing to yield. Let that one sink in for a second. Willing to yield. 
When I was a kid, um, Miska might say I still do, but I really loved to argue. And the main thing I loved about arguing was being, was, was being right. And I had a friend named Will, and he really loved to argue too. And there are days I would remember, get, I don't even remember what it would start. It was like, you know, a, a matchbox car, which one was best. I mean, I have no idea. But an hour later, we would end up yelling across the room. Both of us, I think, I know I was totally making facts up. Like I would say, I would, I would throw out some kind of statistic that I totally made up right there. Absolutely unwilling to yield. But how many times do I get in an argument with Miska and I feel exposed in some way and instead of hearing and opening and trusting her heart toward me, I go into defensive posture and maybe I don't make crazy stuff up, but I do other stuff. I, I hide, I go passive-aggressive, because I'm not willing to just yield. So the wisdom from God is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. Without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. I don't know about you. I am starving to be in a community like that. A community that holds together the, the righteousness of God, refusing partiality, refusing hypocrisy, making space for everyone, naming evil as evil, mixed with massive uh, generosity and gentleness, a willingness to yield, mercy, good fruits. Don't you want to be that kind of people? That's the kind of people that the Holy Spirit makes possible. That is the kind of people that the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes possible. That's why it's provocative. Because I don't know what kind of personality type we are. I don't know what our education level is. I don't know the socioeconomic status each of us are. I don't know our story, our history, where we come from. But I don't think... There's any one of us that when we hear this description of God's true wisdom wouldn't in some way tear something false away from us and birth something new within us. And with all of this, we can be, James says, the kind of people who make peace in the world. And find ourselves living in God's peace as well. So he describes what this true wisdom is. And his final description is. And a harvest of righteousness. Is sown in peace. For those who make peace. Now hopefully we've been together long enough to know. We've heard enough of the scripture to know. When the scriptures talk about peace, it's not talking about just being nice. It is way more radical than that. 
It is a new humanity. It is a new way of being human. It is God's shalom. And we can participate in sowing and reaping a harvest of God's righteous peace. May it be so. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.